When General George Washington commissioned six ships back in 1775, the appeal to heaven flag was raised to fly over the ships during the Revolutionary War. The flag was actually used before the stars and stripes existed. America's cause for freedom came from Britain's tyranny. And having exhausted all the possibilities for a peaceful resolution, uh, experiencing the liberty that the colonists desired, they realized that their only hope for freedom was to go to war. Yet Britain had a great military. Not only did they have a great military, they had the world's strongest military during that time. Their weaponry, their wealth contrasted the colonists' dire lack of resources and um, any military attempt to free from British rule was laughable to the world. And it was laughable, that is, unless God intervened on our behalf. And the stands of the colonists was very simple. Their right to freedom came from God, and they believed that he would help them. We will appeal to heaven, they declared, and that flag was born. The popularity of the flag spread and was soon flying throughout the colonies. It was clear where the colonists had placed their faith. They realized that they had no chance of winning a war against the world's greatest empire unless God stepped in and made a difference. So this morning, as we look at the 4th of July coming up this week, uh, we can go back into time and look at the nation of Israel that really mirrored uh, what America is dealing with today. And uh, you can jump in. Uh, and find yourself in the Bible. We're going to be going to uh, the book of Judges, chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the back table. And uh, we really encourage you to grab one of those. You can keep it, follow along, and read it. I believe that when you read the Bible, it will transform your life. I've seen it over and over again. And that's what God wants. He wants your life to be transformed and changed. And, um, and he's able to do that this morning. So, as we look at America and as you look at that video, man, you, look, you see, wow, God, you, you have been so, so good to us as a nation We're seeing uh, history of America be rewritten right before our very eyes. Many of you are fully aware of the attack on this country from its own citizens, bashing it, bashing the history of it, uh, saying what a terrible country we are. And I can tell you this, that America has its faults. There has never been a country that's been perfect in all of human history, and it will never be perfect until Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom once and for all. So just settle that, okay? You're not going to live in a perfect world as long as you're living in this world. But America has, has done and was founded on biblical principles, and in the, in the process of our history being rewritten or overturned, you are being lied to and I'm being lied to about the truth. 
very similar to what's happening even in Christendom throughout not only our country but the world where you have people who don't know what they're talking about tell us what God is like and who he is. And so it's easy to fall prey to what you hear so often and think, well, it must be truth because everybody's saying it. Can I tell you, you need to be careful on what you're listening to. I have some history of our country in my hand, and I'd like to read it to you because it's the truth. And you might be floundering this morning and thinking, man, what a terrible place to live. I can tell you that my own grandparents came from Hungary as teenagers to come to America for a better life, and they found it here. And I never heard my grandparents bash this country. In fact, I never heard my parents bash this country. And I remember as a 16-year-old young man in my bedroom all alone thinking, wow, out of all the places in the world I could be born, I was born in America. And really how fortunate I was. And so, just a heads up, we're shooting a flare into the air this morning. Uh, and I, would have, I, I just think it would be good to be alert to what happened, what really happened. Not could have happened, but really happened years ago. Despite claims of those who would deny America's Christian heritage, our founding fathers were men of faith who turned regularly to prayer and drew their inspiration from biblical truth. It was on July 4, 1776, that a group of men and women took stand for freedom by issuing the Declaration of Independence. And they wrote, of the laws of nature and of nature's God, they boldly proclaimed that people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and closed with a powerful statement of their firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. And although 243 years have passed since that day, America's need for prayer has not diminished, and our country needs prayer more than now than ever. Pastor Jacob Duchesne, at the start of the historic proceedings on the second day of the Continental Congress in 1776, prayed, Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsel of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle all things on the best and surest foundation. On May 17, 1776, Congress appointed a day of fasting and prayer for the colonies so that they might be sincere repentance, appease God's righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain his pardon and his forgiveness. It was George Washington, when he was being inaugurated as president, the first president of this country, he added these four words, so help me God, because he realized that he could not lead this nation without the help of God. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to government of any other. For democracy to work, the majority of the people have to be religious and moral at their core, or it falls apart. 
Whether we live or die, sink or swim, succeed or fail, I stand behind the Declaration of Independence. And if God wills it, I am ready to die in order that this country might experience freedom. The first act of the United States Congress was what? It was to authorize the printing of 20,000 Bibles. The Christian consensus is easily verified by the fact that prior to 1789, the year 11 of the 13 states ratified the Constitution. Many other states still had constitutional requirements that man must be a Christian in order to hold public office. I can hear the wows going on right now. A pastor named Francis Bellamy wrote Our Pledge of Allegiance. Another pastor, Samuel Smith, wrote the hymn, My Country, Tis of Thee. John Leland, another pastor, wrote the introduction of the First Amendment to the Constitution. Prior to the war between the states, 90% of all American college presidents were preachers of the gospel. In fact, 106 of the first 108 schools in America were founded on Christian faith. Harvard and Yale began as ministry training schools, schools to train pastors. Statements of philosophy, this is Yale's. Seeing God is the giver of all wisdom, every scholar besides private or secret prayer shall be present morning and evening at public prayer. Princeton, cursed be all that learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Harvard, let every student be plainly instructed on and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus, which is eternal life. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Dartmouth, William and Mary, and Columbia were founded by Christian pastors with the intent to educate America's youth. John Harvard, a pastor in Charleston, Massachusetts, and the man for whom Harvard University was named, stated the purpose of the university was that every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the foundation of all knowledge and learning, and see that the Lord only gives wisdom to let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek Christ Jesus as Lord and Master. Even Harvard's original seal, you can go to Harvard today and it's still sitting there, states truth for Christ and the church. Columbia University wrote it was founded for the chief things that are aimed in this college are to teach, engage the children to know God and Jesus Christ and to love and serve him in all sobriety. America's first textbook was the New England Primer. On the cover was the Lord's Prayer. First textbook in America. In fact, it taught the alphabet in theological verse. A, in Adam's fall we, all, we sinned all. B, it's heaven to find the Bible's mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. A study of 15,000 items, newspaper articles, pamphlets, books, diaries, all written by the founding fathers of the United States. A careful study of all these documents shows 94% of all the quotes 
are directly from the Bible. A ruling by the Supreme Court in 1892, which really wasn't that long ago, said our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. In this sense and to this extent, our civilizations and our institutions are emphatically Christian. Realizing the framework of our nation's government was patterned after the Bible. You know, the three branches of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial. You know where they got that from? Isaiah 33, verse 22. It was a new concept. The first government in all of history to come up with three branches of government. And it came out of the Bible. The judge, for the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. He will care for us and save us. The judge, judicial branch. Lawgiver, legislative branch. King, executive branch. The founding fathers went to the Bible to organize this government. Friends, this is just a summary of how our country was founded. And you might be hearing otherwise. And so I just want to encourage you, first of all, to study your history to know the facts. Because not only are you being lied to about American history, you're being lied to about Christianity. That's why it's imperative that you read the Bible to find out who God is and his plan for all of humanity. And it's very simple. It's very simple. For God so loved the world, not part of the world, not a country, not a state, the world, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved that he gave, he gave his one and only son. So whoever believes in him, putting all your weight and trust in him, you will not be eternally separated from him, but instead you will be eternally with him. That's the heart of God. And so... As we look uh, at our text this morning, the book of Judges, chapter 6, in the back of your program, there's a few other verses, but uh, uh, again, your smartphone, you can, you can dial it up to uh, version, New Living Translation. On the back of your program, there's an outline, and, and you, can, you can follow uh, right along. So... Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. 
They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. That's a great place to be, friend. Will you cry out to the Lord for help? Because it's a sign, it's a picture that you're desperate. It's a good thing to be desperate. You have nowhere else to go. And God is there. Just like General George Washington raised the appeal to heaven flag, Lord, we need your help against the greatest military in the world. So we see in the book of Judges, unless the Lord intervened on Israel's behalf, they would be crushed by this great army from Midian. And so, Looking at uh, verse 1, number 1 in your notes, uh, help, Lord, help, Lord. That's, that's, that's a good place, help, Lord. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years, and they were cruel. Last fall, uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson, who had been a prisoner in Turkey for two years, he was arrested because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was at a pastor's gathering down in Alabama a couple weeks ago. And he said that... um, He believes that intense Christian persecution is coming to America. Now, for those of you that have been attending Wednesday nights with the, uh, the end of the story with Pete Briscoe, he went through the book of Daniel, talking about the end times and how things are going to end. And he summarized the whole deal that if you're a believer, it's going to be bad for a while, and then it's going to be good. If you're a non-believer, it's going to be good for a while, and then it's going to be bad. Can I just say bad for a long time? Hmm? Yeah, the bad that believers will experience is it's going to be a short time in comparison. And so um, Andrew Brunson is saying uh, that he was sustained through Bible reading and prayer while he was in prison, and he shared that the Lord spoke to him in 2009 about difficult times coming to Turkey, which he then experienced. He says, I don't think we're prepared for what's coming. I fear that many of us are complacent and we're unaware, and this means that the people in our churches are going to be blindsided by what comes. So you, talking to the pastors, you have the task of preparing your people. Brunson, a missionary for 23 years in Turkey, was arrested and charged with terrorism, espionage, and accused of Christianization, which was deemed a hostile act. 
And he told his fellow pastors that persecution is nothing new, but we need to be prepared for it. Now, I, I understand that's something that we don't want to hear. We live in America. We think we have the freedom from persecution. But when you look at the number of believers, more Christians have died in this last century than have in all of history before. And when you see what's going on around China and Iran and North Korea, we can go on and on, where Christians are being heavily persecuted and even some giving their lives, it, we, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of what's going on in our world so we would know the time in which we're living. Jesus is coming. He's coming. And we need to be ready. So, I gave you number one, help, Lord, right? Are you there? Help, Lord, or we could flip it. We could say, Lord, help. It still means the same. little background on, on the book of Judges. Uh, there's a sin cycle that the nation of Israel would fall into, and you'll see it on the screen, and uh, we'll track it. So the peace in the land, Israel serves the Lord, and then Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God punishes Israel. Why does he do that? Because God loves Israel, and he wants them to come back and have a relationship with him. He realizes that sometimes hard times awakens us to the condition that we're in, and we cry, help, Lord. And so Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises a judge. Israel's delivered. Peace in the land as Israel serves the Lord. But they don't stay there very long, do they? Hmm? No, because that cycle goes over and over again, all through the book of Judges. And so... Um, uh, has human nature changed, by the way? Huh? Have we become smarter? Well, some people think they have. But when it comes to spiritual living, uh, human nature always seems to resist and push back at the God who created them. And so, friend, you and I have a responsibility, and that is to keep and maintain and nurture our relationship with Christ. We know that if you just put it on cruise control or hold or whatever the case may be, you will drift and wander far from God. That will happen. And so we have to be intentional about that relationship. One more thing we notice in these first six verses is that uh, the Midianites brought in a new weapon uh, on the battlefield, and it was the camel. The camel had never been used before, and, and uh, these camels would swoop in from the desert. Um, uh, they'd be loaded with food. They would um, um, have their weapons on those camels. And, man, you know, these camels could go 300 miles without food or water. They were, like, invincible, you know? And, and so uh, this is just kind of like a, an artist's rendering of, of what it looked like. You know, these guys, can you imagine you're a foot soldier and you got a camel coming down on you? What would you do? Well, some of you would go, Whoa! oh no. You know, because, camels would be very intimidating, wouldn't they? 
if you never dealt with them on the battlefield before. And so for seven years, these camels were showing up. And imagine, imagine you're, you, you have your little garden in your backyard, and, and who's attacking it? Not camels, but rabbits and squirrels, right? You don't have that problem? You know how it feels like when animals destroy your little garden? Can you imagine an entire nation, they would work hard in the spring and summer, and when harvest time, the Midianites would show up every year and take the crops. They worked so hard year after year, and the same thing would happen. They would, you could almost imagine they started to get paranoid, wouldn't you? Oh, here comes the fall, here comes harvest time, here come the Midianites, just like clockwork, boom, and they steal everything you've worked hard for. And that's what was going on. So, here we are. Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. That's not a good place to be, starving. Number two, God sees what's happening. Look at verse 7. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. What happened? We're going to see this later on, that Gideon has wrong information. He's blaming God. He thinks God packed it up and let them let Israel all alone. And so God is straightening out this misinformation by sending a prophet to Israel. And he's giving them the truth. And that's why, friend, you and I, once again, we need to be very careful on what we believe and what we're allowing into our heads. Does it line up to God's word or doesn't it? And we see... The Lord sent a prophet. Why did he send a prophet? Because God sees everything. I want you to, seven and a half billion people, and God sees everything that's going on with every single person. He knows exactly what they're going through. He knows exactly what they're thinking because we serve a great God. God sees everything because he loves you, and he loves mankind. So for God so loved the world, and he still loves the world. Listen to what the prophet says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. What's God doing? He's setting the record straight. God's saying, look what I did for you. I gave you everything you needed, and you did not listen to me. Instead of them pointing their finger at God, God is pointing his finger back at Israel. You didn't listen to me. That's why this is going on. When we sin, there are consequences to the sin that we choose to be involved in. And so often we blame God for the consequences. God is saying, you didn't listen to me. I gave it to you clear. Everybody understood. You said yes to what I said. But you didn't listen to me. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Isn't that great news? The eyes of the Lord. And yes, you've heard that China's got 
cameras every 50 yards, face, facial recognition. They got cameras right outside of church buildings so they can see who's going in. And then they call you in and say, do you want to, you want to keep your job? Because if you want to keep your job, you can't go to church anymore. That's going on in China right now. Oh, by the way, we see who's coming into church with you. Do you want them to lose their jobs too? The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Is your heart fully committed to him? Hmm? God sees and he understands and I don't know what you're going through. Many of you are going through challenging times and God knows and we see that in Hebrews 4.15 that we have a great high priest and his name is Jesus and he understands what we go through. It says this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do and yet he did not sin. That word understand, it's interesting in the Greek. In the Greek, it's two words. It's sin, S-Y-N, and pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S. And it means to suffer with. The high priest of ours suffers with our weaknesses. See? We're not alone in our sufferings. We're not alone in our weaknesses because we have a great high priest who fully understands. Aren't you glad for that? He sees everything. Number three, hiding in the shadows, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash. Joash, by the way, is the father of Gideon, of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. There's a lot of hiding going on. There's a lot of people living in the shadows. See that? Is that you? Huh? Is that you? Hiding in the shadows? Hiding in the shadows. It's time to come out. Yeah. Gideon. He was hiding in the shadows. So easy to do, isn't it? Hiding under a bushel, no. I'm going to let it shine. Hiding in the shadows. Are you hiding in the shadows? Kerry knew off, he pastors up in Canada. Canada, by the way, has less religious freedom than we do in the United States. He says, do you ever feel like the world you stepped into years ago is no longer the same? The culture around us is changing, and we can debate when the collapse of Christendom in the West began, but there is little doubt we are witnessing a massive shift away from the cultural consensus that existed even a few generations ago. Our views of sexuality, family, parenting, drugs, finance, and other values change, but how do you respond? What's the key to responding when the world around you no longer shares your value system? Do you go in hiding? Do you hide in the shadows? 
he gives some approaches. Number one, be oblivious to the culture. In other words, stick your head in the sand and pretend it'll all go away and get better one day. Is that good? No, you don't want to do that. Two, you can hide from the culture. You can go out to the desert or up on the mountain, Mount Everest, and call it a day on the peak. No, you don't want to do that either. How about slam the culture? The church is really good at slamming the culture, aren't we? He says, I'm baffled as to why Christians insist non-Christians adopt our moral views. Why on earth would Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians when they're not Christians? Say that ten times real fast. Isn't that right? We shouldn't expect non-believers to follow biblical truths. If you want to keep being ineffective at reaching unchurched people, keep judging them. But can I tell you this? Paul says that believers need to judge each other. Don't pull this Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged. The most popular verse right now. Don't pull that card. If you're a follower of Christ, you should be transparent enough to say, I want you to speak into my life, man. If my life isn't lining up to the gospel, you need to tell me. That's what, that's what needs to be happening in a church today, but instead we've postured ourselves, you can't tell me what to do. Paul says, we don't judge the non-believers, but we need to judge believers, friend. Having a government that doesn't embrace the church's values line for line actually puts Christians in great company, the company of the earliest followers of Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus spent zero time asking the government to change during his ministry. Did you ever see him appeal to Rome? No, never happened. Maybe the future North American church will be more like the early church, rising early before dawn to pray, to encourage, to break bread. Maybe we'll be willing to lose our jobs, our homes, our families, and even our lives because we follow Jesus Christ. That might just start off a revolution like it did two millennia ago. Perhaps the government might even take notice, amazed by the love that radical Jesus followers display. Four, embrace people and offer an alternative. There's much about today's culture we may not like, but that's no excuse to stop loving people within the culture. In an age when so many churches push away people they don't agree with, the field is ripe for Christians willing to embrace their neighbors, to actually love them, kind of like Jesus told us to. Does that mean we have to agree with everything they do? Absolutely not, no. But when culture truly becomes post-Christian, as it is in Canada, where I live, it's often not that people are rejecting Christian teachings, it's that they don't even know what those teachings are. They're surprisingly open to Christianity if the Christians they meet are loving and generous people. How's that going? And five, use the culture to reach the culture. This means genuinely loving people outside our community and sharing the teachings and hope of Christ in a clear and compelling way. To go reach some people who haven't heard about how deeply Jesus loves them and use the culture to reach the culture. Sound good? Right on, man. Hiding in the shadows. It's not going to happen if you're hiding in the shadows, by the way. 
And that's where Gideon was. And I, I like this, that the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath. Let's look at that map, by the way. Let's pull up this. Let's leave the shadows behind and get to the map. So, so Oprah right here. You see the tree? You see Gideon there? Huh? Yo? Is he there? He's under the tree. That's what God says. God sees everything, and he sees Gideon is under this great tree in Oprah. You know, what's, you know what Gideon's got going on there? He's got his violin out. He's feeling sorry for himself. Woe is me. His world has shrunk to Gideon and company. And God sees him there feeling sorry for himself. And God sees that this man has been blaming God for the misfortune of his country. Oprah right here, Sea of Galilee, beautiful. Jordan River, boom, Dead Sea. Mediterranean Sea right here. Jerusalem, it's still there today, by the way. You get to go see it. Hiding in the shadows. But the angel of the Lord, do you know, in, in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, that simply means it's not an angel. When it says an angel of the Lord, means it's an angel. When it says the angel of the Lord, it means it is Jesus Christ in the flesh. He shows up in the Old Testament, pre-incarnate, before he comes in Matthew as a baby. Isn't that cool? Because he's always been. And so Jesus himself shows up to give our good man Gideon an encouraging word. And uh, we know Gideon, you know, he's, he's all about blame and shame. You know, I'm a nobody. I'm not good enough. Comes up, he's got his list in his, his scroll is rolled up in his back pocket. You know, he can wheel it out when Jesus shows up. This is why you can't use me. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Aren't, isn't that a relief to you, that you don't have to have enough power to do what God wants you to do? It's Jesus living inside you. Woo! He's inside you, man. He's camping out on the inside. He's living in here. And wherever you go and whatever you do, he's going with you, whether you want him to or not. Hiding in the shadows. What's Gideon doing? Israel would normally take the wheat and they'd put it out on the ground and let the wind take the chaff and blow it away. But because life has been so tough on Gideon, he's in, he's, under, he's in the ground, man. He's down deep in a hole somewhere, hiding. Sometimes culture has a way of doing that. It's, we just say it's just easier to go into a hole, you know, than letting my light shine. Don't let it happen. Number four, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Mighty hero. And, and Gideon, verse 13, sir, uh, if the Lord is with us, why? Here we go. Here's the wise. 
This is the violin time. Why? Why? Mm, why has all this happened to us? See, he's feeling sorry for himself. And where have all the miracles our ancestors told us about? So he knew church history, but he was, it's all distorted. Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? That's what the prophet said. But now the Lord has abandoned us. Who, did the prophet say that? No, he didn't say that. He said that they didn't listen to God. And hand us over to Midianites, verse 15. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. So you see, Gideon has this, this uh, identity problem. You know, my family, they, they, they're not affluent. You know, we, in our neighborhood, we are, we are, the last name Gideon, man, we are, the, we are on the bottom. Plus, plus me, Gideon, I am on the bottom of the bottom of my family. I am a real nobody. He's, he's already out. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, the mighty Gideon, he's, he's a hero in hiding. You know, he's kind of looking around himself. Is that angel talking to somebody else? Jesus talking to somebody else in this pit? Is there more than me in here? You know, the mighty hero, he's down the street. That, that guy would make a mighty hero, not me. He's messed up. And I like, I like um, verse 13. He says, he goes into this if theology. Sir, if the Lord is with us, why does all this happen? You know, if. And then verse 17, if you are truly going to help me. The if, you ever say that to God, if? In verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised. You know, it's the if theology. You can't use me because if happens. And we know that the Lord had not really forsaken them. They had forsaken the Lord. That was the truth of the matter. That's part of repenting is taking ownership for your sin. Don't blame it on somebody else. I sinned, Lord, I realize that I sinned and I ask for your forgiveness. And I need, I need you to do that. Oh, by the way, do you know what Gideon's name literally means in Hebrew? It means great strength and courage. <laughs> His dad, when he was born, he says, man, this, this dude's going to be courageous and he's going to be strong. But look what life did to him. It made him weak. Fragile, compromised. You see that? See how life has a way of doing that? What does the Bible say about you? You are part of his beloved. You are his masterpiece. You are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says about you. Gideon's name meant courageous, brave, strong. Life had a way of beating... Life has the same way of beating the Bible out of you. You soon forget what God has to say about you and how God sees you. That's why you've got to stay in it. That's right. So, Paul, the apostle, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Isn't that liberating? God is the one. 
He puts his stamp of approval on you. And man, we are we're grateful for that. God knows our weaknesses before he calls us, man. He knows. <laughs> we think, God, do you know, do you know me well enough? Here's, here's all my list of reasons why you can't use me. Oh, why didn't I know that, God says. How come somebody didn't send me a memo on you? God knows everything about you. He knew everything about Gideon, how weak he was, intimidated, and he still came to him. That should really be a, a source of encouragement uh, to all of us. And, and there we have it. Number five, God says, I promise. I promise. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. In verse 16, the Lord said to him, I will be with you. Look at those promises. I am sending you and I'm going to be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Is that true? He wasn't fighting against one man. No. But that's the way it seemed because God was with him. God gave him a promise. I will be with you. Just like Jesus did before he ascended back to the Father in Matthew 28. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You don't go by feelings. You go by what God says. And God always keeps his promises. I will be with you. And we could even say, Lord, thank you for keeping your promise, for being with me. Yes, Lord. Number six, God encourages to step up. He encourages to step up. So after, after Jesus came and spoke into Gideon's life, almighty hero, and there was conversation that went on for a while. Notice what verse 25 says, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on the hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. That's a good place to be, do what God says to do. Now check this out, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. What's that say to you? Sometimes you talk yourself out of doing what God has told you to do because you're afraid. Gideon just blew that one out of the water. You can still be afraid and do it anyway. I can say yo to that because that, that was me, man, for a long time. I was paralyzed by fear, you know. I was paralyzed by my identity. But then I had to step out and say, God, you promised to be with me, and if I fail, it's your fault. 
you're going to let me fall, but I know you're going to pick me back up again. And I started stepping out in faith, man, and I saw God was faithful. I was afraid, man. I'll give you a little hint. I'm still afraid. You know? On Sunday mornings, I'm fear. And, I, and so what I do, I do it anyway. I jump out and say, God, catch me. Yeah, and he's been faithful. Don't let fear paralyze you. Step on it. See God walk you through. So he did it at night when the lights were turned off. Little footnote, by the way. So Joash, his father, does he worship God? No. He's got a Baal altar in his backyard, the father. And you can see how that influenced Gideon, his son. But there's something interesting that happens, friends, that even though the father should have been leading that home spiritually, the father checks out because that's what everybody in the community is doing. Everybody worships Baal, so I'm going to worship Baal too. And God has an encounter with Gideon and Look what happens the next morning. The people said to each other, Who did this? Who tore down our Asherah pole? And so they got the FBI and CIA, and they got the drones out, and they were looking everywhere, you know. Who did it? And, you know, in the backyard there was a security camera, and they pulled that one up and found that it was, in fact, Gideon. So they said, Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob, imagine the environment, friends, a mob culture. Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jeroboam, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. What's going on here? Because Gideon had the courage to take Baal and the Asherah pole down. You know what that did for the dad? It reignited his passion for God. He doesn't, he doesn't defend Baal. He says, if Baal really is God, then let Baal take care of Baal. I have just seen my son have the courage to rip that thing down. Baal, if he's God, he can take care of himself. I'm going back to the real God. That's what Joash is saying. And my son reminded me that I was messed up spiritually. See how that happens in families? Sometimes that happens, man. But as a dad, I'm challenging you, man. You need to take down the bale in your backyard. You need to cut down the Asherah pole in your house. You see what's going on here? God, before God has Gideon go deal with the Midianites, he has Gideon take care of business at home first. That's what he's doing. You tear down the altar of Baal, now you build me a new altar to God. That's what he's saying. Too many people, they think they can, they can live a life in their home. You know, they can, they can terrorize their kids and they can 
verbally abuse their wives and they think God's going to bless them out in the workplace. You know, when they talk about it's not going to happen that way. It's got to start in your home. It's got to happen there. It's the greatest spiritual training you can have is right in your own home. And once Gideon had that, guess what? Guess what happens? We go to chapter 7, and, and God says, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch. Sounds like a good weapon on the battlefield, doesn't it? And then he said, keep your eyes on me, and when I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. And as soon as I and those are with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And it was midnight, just after midnight, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp, and suddenly they blew their ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held their blazing torches in their left hand and their trumpets in their right hand. <laughs> Makes you want to go get it. We should have handed out torches, man, on your way in this morning. And they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. Check this out. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Isn't that amazing? They didn't even have to go to battle. They just blew the horn and held up the light. And God took care of it for them. Wow. So, 450 Midianites against one Israeli. That was the odds on the battlefield. 450 to 1. Good or bad? Should we vote? It doesn't matter how many. You could have 450,000 to 1 if God's on your side. Friend, let God fight your battles. Whew. The reason why God cut it down to 300 men, you know why? Because he wanted Israel to see that it was a miracle from God. Their military strength didn't cut it. It was an appeal to heaven. And friend, you and I have that responsibility today, not only for our country but for our families, an appeal to heaven. Lord, we need you. We need your involvement. On Friday, April 3rd, 2004, news of an American soldier killed in combat from the Middle East was reported, and the name was Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman did something extraordinary. He, he had everything a young man could want as a citizen of his country, but he wanted to give something back because he was drafted in the NFL by the Arizona Cardinals back in 1998. He won the strong safety position where he broke the fan franchise record for tackles in the year 2000 with 224. He was at the top of his game. His contract was $3.6 million. 
Plus, the Super Bowl champs, the St. Louis Rams, were all already contacting him, and they were going to triple his salary. And so Pat Tillman, man, seemed like he had everything going for himself. But after September 11th, the terrorist attacks, a higher cause gripped him. In May 2002, at the age of 25, he walked away from the NFL, trading a multi-million dollar contract for an $18,000 a year salary being an army ranger. He didn't make a big thing out of it. He didn't promote it. He didn't brag about it. He just wanted to give something back to his country that had given him so much. And so two years later, Tillman was killed about 25 miles outside a U.S. military camp in Afghanistan. Comments of players, soldiers, politicians, man, they all gave accolades to Pat Tillman. What a man he was. They talk about the impact player. Well, Pat was an impact person. He swam against the current. He marked those who knew him. Friend, like Pat Tillman, signed off and stepped up for his country. That's what, that's what God is saying to each one of us this morning. He's encouraging you and I to step up, to stop making excuses, stop putting our head in the sand, our country is at a critical point. God is saying you need to be the light in your culture to let Christ be honored through your life. You need to step up and make that happen. And so we can start by saying, Lord, help me. And then to know that God sees everything that's going on. He sees everything in your life and around your life. And if you're hiding in the shadows, it's time to to come out and realize that you're not a loser, you're not a mistake, you're not a failure. God wants to use you. Why? Because he promises to be with you. I just want to encourage each one of us today to step up for the honor of the Lord. Father, we thank you today for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for this country that we have the privilege of living in, a country that sends out missionaries all around the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. A country that gives money to national churches all around the world. A country that was founded on Christian core values. And Lord, as we look at Independence Day, may we be reminded to pray for our country. Because we need your help, Lord. And not only that, you want each one of us to be involved, as Gideon was, to make a difference for their country. We might say, well, it's, I, I can't make a big impact. Well, if a bunch of us start making an impact, it will be a huge impact. So help us, Lord, to step up. remind ourselves that you're going to be with us. Forgive us for making excuses why you can't use us and signing off on why we're not good enough and whatever the case may be. But you call us a mighty hero because you live inside of us. We're 
grateful for that. We're grateful, Lord, for your hand upon our lives. And we give you praise and honor in Jesus' name.